Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to Everything is Black and White podcast. I'm Andrew Musgrove and today we're going to have our first of what will be several season reviews. Chris Woff joins me. And we're going to go in with the player awards. You may have seen it on our website. We did it, I think it was last week, where we went through the usual kind of player awards. And we're going to do that with a few more as well. We haven't afforded Chris's notes from that piece, so it will be all off the cusp. Um, he's not too looking forward to that because his memory isn't as good as it once was. Uh, we've just played on St. James's Park as well. How are your legs? A bit tired. Very, very tired, to be fair. But uh, I'll soldier on because... Chris scored two goals, and he's uh, very chuffed with that. Um, against me, he was in goal. We shan't talk about the performance or the scoreline. What we shall talk about, Chris, is before we dive into the player awards, obviously a lot of rumours going on, a lot of speculation going on. We have Rafa Benitez's contract is obviously the main one. Salman Rondon's future, another one. Um, we'll go, first of all, with Benitez's future. What's the latest update? We are now here on Tuesday, the 21st of May. So if you're listening after and something changes, don't write in. But Chris, as it stands, Tuesday 21st of May, the latest? Well, Benitez met uh, in London with the Newcastle hierarchy last Thursday and they discussed face-to-face both of their positions and basically over the weekend, sort of a contract or the framework of a contract was drawn up. They've remained in dialogue ever since and all the soundings at the moment are relatively relaxed, that although we haven't had a conclusion yet, and I know Newcastle fans are desperate to hear about it, but all of the sides, everyone seems pretty relaxed on it and seems like we are moving towards positive conclusion. There hasn't been any leaks or substantive leaks of any form from either side to suggest that a compromise hasn't been reached. Um, so I'm quietly optimistic that we will get to a point where Rafa Benitez will stay how long his contract may be at this stage, I'm not sure. And obviously, with any of these things, until it's actually signed, things could change. But as I say, at the moment, I wouldn't necessarily panic yet. It would be nice if Newcastle would get this sorted soon because the season finished now 10 days ago now. Obviously, Brighton have sacked and then hired a replacement for Chris Hutton and in, in Potter in the, in the time that's taken from the end of the season till now. So other teams are getting ready, getting prepared. Bournemouth have already made a sign and it would be nice for Newcastle to get themselves into a position whereby they have the manager sewn up as soon as possible. It would indeed because once Rafa's on board, once he's signed up, then you can start looking and moving forward with with Salman Rondon and then potentially um, a new owner takeover. That is not uh, news saying that Benitez has signed there. Have you heard the message? I do apologise. I'll put that on a silent. But yeah, Benitez signs and then you can start moving on forward with, with, with players coming in. Yeah, well, the frustration for a lot of players actually at the club at the moment is that they don't yet know who the manager's going to be. Again, they've had positive soundings, the suggestions from Benitez last week where he said to them, look, I'll see you in July. July the 4th is when Newcastle return for pre-season. But at the moment, they don't know their futures. A lot of players who want to go, the likes of Isaac Hayden, Jose Perez has expressed a potential interest in going. The likes of John Joe Shelby, he doesn't know where he stands. And then Salomon Rondon, obviously you have 
Newcastle, well, Benitez would like to sign him. Newcastle are not necessarily themselves as overawed by the prospect of signing Rondon given his age, given the cost of bringing him in. And clubs such as West Ham, Wolves have been emboldened by that. They see this as an opportunity to almost hijack any deal for Rondon. Rondon's left in a bit of limbo. Wolves can offer him Europa League football next season. West Ham can offer him the opportunity to live in London. Both are probably likely to offer higher wages than Newcastle. So the longer this drags on, the less chance there is of Salomon Rondon signing. Because, And I'm sure during discussions between Benitez and the club that one thing he will have said is that if possible, he would like to sign Salomon Rondon permanently. Well, sure. I know in the last podcast, you and Mark discussed a bit about takeovers. It's still all quiet on that front. Um I know we, we have written about certain interests behind the scenes. I wrote a piece on that on a potential Mexican group. And it's quite interesting because from what I understand that they are interested. Um, they have just bought a, a, a football club yesterday, um, Alatas FC in Mexico. So from what I was told, that was, that was their first priority. And then they were going to look on to European clubs and Newcastle was one of those listed. And a source has suggested that the interest has gone a bit further than simply being interested but again that probably comes down to you need the manager in place and then you move forward if you are an interested party potentially yeah I mean that could complicate matters in general maybe Benitez has wanted some clarity on what the situation is is Mike Ashley going to be here long term and Mike Ashley himself probably doesn't know at this stage he has had as, as we keep saying they have been constantly there's always interest in Newcastle United whether that interest ever turns into a substantive bid is another matter entirely but for now the club are still operating as if Mike Ashley's going to be uh, the owner in the medium term Rafa Benitez only has Mike Ashley to be able to deal with at the moment he is the person who is owner he is the person he's speaking with so for now Mike Ashley is, has to prioritise tying Rafa Benitez down because he is one of the biggest assets in my opinion the football club has and if Newcastle lose him then although I don't think it would necessarily be catastrophic in the fact that Newcastle would still continue as a club they would still be able to go on it would have a, a very very negative very very much a negative effect on the atmosphere and time side and any manager who was to replace Rafa Benitez would have a very difficult job A getting the fans on side to begin with because they're not Rafa Benitez and B basically picking up the mess that would be left behind most certainly I guess also the system he plays it's very difficult for a manager to come in and replicate that because that is Benitez you know, he's worked so hard to get that done over the last three years I mean you'd likely get a new manager to come in and they'd want to probably change the whole system yeah I mean Benitez has a very particular way that he plays the squad that he's constructed basically fit the model he wants to play so another manager may come in and struggle to necessarily get as much out of them as, as Benitez has so Newcastle have allowed Benitez to construct the squad, albeit not with the money he wants, or not at the level he wants, so the foundations are there for Benitez to continue building. It will be very difficult for someone else to come in and really hit the ground running with that. Well, certainly right. Just before we get on to the player awards, just a reminder to please, to please like and subscribe. And if you're listening on iTunes right now, just pop down in the review box and leave us a wonderful review, or not. Just a review would be nice. Uh, tell us how nice it is to hear Chris's voice every week but please do it's really important to us and we always appreciate feedback as well so get us through Twitter get us on email or on Facebook uh, anything you want us to talk about any questions or just any feedback in general it's much appreciated and it would be great if you can share the podcast around as well to your friends and family right that bit of admin out of the way Chris we're on to the player awards um, I'd like a drum roll here please 
we'll start with a player of the year. Um, I think if we'd said this time last year, uh, or the start of the season rather, and then 10 weeks in, 15 weeks in, if we'd said there are going to be several candidates for this, people probably would have laughed you out of the studio. Yeah, very much so. I mean, Newcastle start the season was very difficult and the player who I'm going to pick and even the ones I'm going to nominate as for honourable mentions, they didn't start the season very well and we didn't really see the best of them until November when we saw start to see the best in Newcastle as well. So it's quite a dramatic turnaround both for the players and for Benitez and the club in general, the way that they fought back. And for after that 10-game terrible start the season, they really did go on an excellent run. So I, I picked Salomon Rondon. The reason I'm picking Salomon Rondon primarily other than the fact that it's become such a focal point of the Newcastle side is that I harboured the same doubts. I think that the club hierarchy harboured last summer when Benitez said that he wanted to bring Salomon Rondon and he was a striker I identified. I was different to the club in the fact that, yeah, I had my reservations, but I also thought, well, Rafa Benitez is the world-class manager. I'm not. He's obviously seen something and he wants to build a team around him. And you just watch, watching Rondon home and away this season almost more what he does off the ball than on it it's just he, he presses me so much he isn't the flashiest footballer in the world he isn't technically the best footballer in the world but he just makes it makes himself a nuisance and he really does give opposition defenders a torrid time Virgil van Dijk had I think probably the most difficult game he had throughout the season at St James's Park away at Leicester I remember he gave Harry Maguire an absolutely torrid time and 10 go- 11 goals I think it was 11 Premier League goals uh, seven assists not a bad return certainly seen as he didn't score in the Premier League until November but he gives more, so much more than that he's the focal point of the side he really blossomed once Almiron came in as well as Perez did and I just think that the way that the team is built he is essential to the way that they play I'm not very good at maths because obviously he scored didn't he against Fulham on the last game of the season but I think up to that point he had a hand in 47% of Newcastle's goals for the whole season um, absolutely vital, you know. And it was it's kind of strange because when Islam Slomani came in last season on, on loan, you could see you can see the comparisons between the two, both kind of built in the same way, both lacking pace, but then they do kind of glide uh, when they do get into full flow. Um, and Rondon, thankfully, just seemed to work and, and click into, you know, whatever Benitez, Benitez's plan. Yeah, he's far more mobile than Samani. I think I think that's what the, the real difference I've seen him. That yeah, he isn't the quickest, but what he does is cover a heck of a lot of a lot of ground. And it's very very difficult in modern day football to play that lone striker role, particularly when you're away from home and you don't have anyone within 20, 30 yards of you. And he does so well to win the ball, or when he doesn't, when the ball's coming forward, he watches what the opposition defender's going to do, and he leads them to make mistakes, and he brings his teammates into play. And yeah, I've just been really, really impressed with him. As I say, I had I harboured doubts about him and he's proved me wrong and really vindicated Benitez's decision to go for him. You've got to have a, um, a kind of strong mentality as well, haven't you, to, um, to, to play that lone striker? You do, and he's very confident in his own ability. He seems to relish wearing the number nine shirt. West Brom, I think, the issue there was he was playing in a Tony Pulis team for a long time. He didn't really get that much service. There were very much... A, for want of a better term, a long ball team. And the way that Newcastle play off Rondon is a bit cleverer than that. What they do is that Rondon, yeah, they do get the ball to him quickly, but he flicks it on, he does well with it. It's not just sort of long ball, hold it up, don't really do anything with it. He's very much bringing the likes of Almiron and Perez into play. 
bringing the wing backs into play, getting on the end of crosses. And yeah, I've just been really impressed. I want to give honourable mentions to Isaac Hayden for his second half of the season. I think that if he had come in to the side maybe a month or so earlier, he probably would have been my player of the season. The way that he's fought back with all the personal issues he's had, I think he's been tremendous. Matt Ritchie as well for switching to a position. I have to be honest, I didn't think he could play. Um, and then Perez probably gets another mention for, the, for his second half of the season. Also Fabian Share the way he's, way he's fought back. But Rondon just pips it for me. Do you think the fact that Newcastle have yet to meet the clause for Rondon and yet to even really talk to these representatives about getting this deal made permanent and Rondon sees Wolves and West Ham interested at the moment it's understood that Rondon is kind of he's waiting for Newcastle Newcastle is his first choice but that can only go on for so long until he goes well look if they can't be bothered to come and get me it's not about negotiation because we know the price you know it's it's kind of it's nailed on 16.5 million that's the close so if they can't be bothered to go and pay that for me, then why should I wait around for, for Newcastle? Yeah, he's not going to wait around forever. And I think that the Dwight Gale news from West Brom, that they're not prepared to, to pay his wages in the Championship, I think that was a bit of a blow to Newcastle because the way they looked at it is I'm pretty sure they would have tried to use Gale as, as a potential make-way in a deal. They can't do that now. They didn't want to pay £60.5 million for Rondon last summer. I still don't think that they the hierarchy ideally would like to. Benitez would like them too, so... Newcastle aren't going to sign Rondon if Benitez goes, so they won't start those negotiations until this is sorted with Benitez, which is the frustration. Everything seems to be on hold. And as I say, Wolves and West Ham are starting to get emboldened by that. They're, they're trying to move early. They think they can snatch in their head of Newcastle, and Newcastle need to get a move on if they are going to sign him. Otherwise, they're going to have to come up with a very good alternative to Rondon, which could end up costing them a, a lot of money. In many ways, and we, we don't want to labour this point because we, we kind of do it enough but in many ways the fact that Wolves are quite willing to pay that they've just gone out and they signed uh, Jimenez I think is he is the, Jimenez, yeah, yeah um, gone out and paid a lot of money for him and then you look at it and you're thinking well that's the ambition that the fans want to see yeah and I think there's plans for a new stadium or an expansion anyway um, of the Molyneux and Newcastle fans just look on envious don't they because that's where Newcastle should be. They should be. If they, if the manager wants a player. He should be back, shouldn't he? Well, Wolves have owners who have big ambitions. Newcastle. The reality is, Mike Ashley's made it quite clear he doesn't really have any big ambitions for the club. He's quite happy with just going forward in terms of the way that Newcastle are going now. He's not really interested in investing a lot of money. So, unfortunately, that that's the reality of the position Newcastle are in. Other clubs have owners who want to progress, want to move forward, want to win things. Newcastle simply don't have that at the moment. I'm afraid. Um, on to villain of the year. I feel that's a bit of a harsh term, but we're going to stick with it. Um, villain of the year. Well, that's probably someone who, well, it's self-explanatory, really. Um, not a bad person, but just someone who's kind of maybe let let the side down or create a bit of an issue at Newcastle. I was actually going to go for someone who isn't actually at Newcastle. I think that I went for in my. Uh, one the, the written one I think that I went for Mike Dean and I'm going to stick to that so the villain in the sense that Rafa Benitez is certainly not a fan of Mike Dean I think he struggled to not make that obvious anyway but um, it one of the funniest things I've seen all season was at AFC when Newcastle were away at Bournemouth and they were conceded a penalty Fernandez sort of climbing on the back of uh, I can't remember which player or whoever it was that the Bournemouth player penalty conceded and Benitez on the touchline 
gesturing to the fourth official. Mike Dean was a referee, gesturing to the fourth official, showing him uh, basically that Willy Bolly had elbowed Iosia Perez at, for Wolves in December up at St. James's Park, and that hadn't been a penalty, but Mike Dean had decided that this it was a bit of a soft foul. It was silly from Fernandez, but a bit of a soft foul was going to be given as a penalty. And for Benitez, he was really frustrated with Mike Dean. He doesn't like him as a referee. He clearly doesn't rate him as a referee. And yeah, just the way that Benitez came out after the Wolves game and spoke about VAR, and there was a few occasions where he complained about him after several games. I think that I think he was a referee for Brighton away as well, and he wasn't very impressed then. So I'm going to go slightly left field, but yeah, go for Mike Dean, and uh, I'm sure everyone will be looking at their favourite gifts of him, giving yellow cards or whatever in rather dramatic ways. Or oh, enjoying himself in the stands the other week. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Tranmere fan. Not that it's all about him, of course. Just got a text through there because uh, Sky Sports, Pete Graves, has just tweeted out the score on social media and someone has politely texted me to say that I am the first person to concede seven goals at St James's Park in quite a while. I'd like to make it clear that even though Chris Woff scored two, um, yeah, I'm the first goalkeeper in 20 years to concede seven goals. I'd like to make it clear I was out for the last two. So, you know. And but, I think we did we got to get beat by eight or nine last summer anyway, so even then... We did, but I wasn't in goal then. Yeah, so that's what I mean. So you did, you, you yourself didn't necessarily concede more than that person last year, so... Ah, I see what you mean now, okay. But yeah, sorry, I just could get that in because we know what social media is like. Um, so Mike Dean gets it. I, I suppose in many ways... A villain is a, is, a, is a difficult one, isn't it? Because you don't want to choose a player because no one's a villain. No, I mean, we've got an underachiever category later and I've got I've got someone in mind we, 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 we could pick... I suppose many fans listening would pick one person as the villain and, and that would be Mike Ashley. Um, again, uh, if you are listening to Mike, a villain, don't come after us. But you can see why because, again, it's another season of... Other than that, I'll meet coming in where he did personally get involved and say, right, let's go make this deal happen. It's still been another year of disappointments um, and fans feeling really let down really and, and Benitez has shared that as well and that's probably why from his part these negotiations aren't simply yeah let's get signed because he wants assurances that it's not going to be another year of battle and relegation it's not going to be another summer of waiting to the last moment and getting third, fourth, fifth choice yeah that's been a constant theme over the last few years and Mike Ashley fan look there are a certain section of fans that no matter what Mike Ashley does come forward will not change their opinion of him and I completely understand that because of what he has done during his 12 years in charge. Just to name them quickly, just a few examples, trying to rename the stadium, Kevin Keegan's situation, the Alan Shearer situation. Look, Mike Ashley is never going to win over some Newcastle fans and he certainly isn't going to win over some Newcastle fans if he shows the lack of ambition he seems to have done over the last few years or what you could argue the majority of his tenure, but certainly over the last few years. So yeah, he will always, to some fans, be the villain. I don't necessarily like terms like that myself because I don't. I know a lot of fans. There's a quote unquote call it like an evil empire up the club. I don't agree with that. I don't think everything is like that. I don't. I personally don't think that Mike Ashley is is up there, sort of in his castle and just trying to destroy everything in Newcastle United. He has his way of doing mm. things. A lot of fans don't agree with it. I don't agree with a lot of parts of what he does, but he has his method of doing things. He has no interest in putting any more money into the club, and so really, it's a, it's a footballing issue rather than. A sort of personal issue in my regard. I think that when he used the terms to build in that regard, I think it also almost makes it more of a personal issue. I mean, we'll, we'll discuss this if it ever happens, if, if the club does ever get sold. But when that day happens, will there be a sense of what if for you? I mean, because that's 
look back at when Ashley first came in, you know, he's one of the richest men in the Premier League today. He was most certainly one of the richest men in the Premier League back then. And there's a real sense, uh, from, from my point, point, just thinking, why couldn't it have been Mike Ashley to take this club to its full potential? Because he's richer than most of the men in the Premier League. To a degree, yeah, but once you actually think about what Mike Ashley is and what he's done with his businesses, he doesn't, it's just not him. He doesn't invest if he doesn't see a return. So for him, it wouldn't be a case of that he'd go on a big splurge and spend loads of money just for the glory. For him, it's all about a return. He's a businessman. And I think to a degree, early on, he wasn't too bothered about losing some money. But as soon as he realised that it was going to be a constant, you were going to have to keep putting a lot of money in to get Newcastle up to a certain level. He lost interest in that. Unfortunately, that's just the way he is. That's the way he's run all of his businesses and it's the way he's going to continue to run Newcastle United. It's quite interesting because the Orlegi group, the Mexican group who have been linked to Newcastle, their kind of ethos is, is kind of to do it where they don't spend above their means, spend within their means, but at the same time moving forward and, and, um, and progressing and being successful but also every now and then they will sell a top player for a lot of money. They will then bring in a player who is unheard of, you know, they've scouted and it's a bit of a gamble, a bit of a risk. I mean, do you think Newcastle fans would accept an owner like that? Well, in theory, to a degree, that is almost meant to be the perfect model that Mike Ashley wants. Hasn't worked out like that. Um, I think poor decisions have been made. I think to a degree, Newcastle fans would accept it as long as there's success, that there hasn't been success in Mike Ashley. If there's no success, then no matter how excited people are, people were very excited when Mike Ashley first came in, things quickly change if it doesn't breed success, if PR is done incorrectly. And Mike Ashley, in my opinion, for most of his tenure has been awful in decision-making in terms of PR. So it's it's about setting the right message to begin with and then also backing that up and backing it up with, with success. Do you think honesty is also a key part? Yeah, and we'll, we'll move on to the to the next awards in just a moment, but the final question on Mike Ashley. Um, if Newcastle were to come out and say, look, we are spending... X amount of money and I thought there's, there's, there's none more that's it do you think there's, that the, the fans would then accept that they might not like it but they say right, okay that the club have been honest and they said this is the strategy they're following I know you probably could have come back and said well if you see how much money you've, you've got to spend clubs will be held to ransom but I'm talking about overall if Newcastle were more honest in their approach and say look we are just going to aim for mid-table that's it would the fans be a bit more Okay. To be fair, they have been quite honest. I mean, the last few years, pound for pound, I keep saying, I know Newcastle fans say, well, they haven't been pound for pound, but Mike Ashley's made it clear he's not put any more money in. And I think at some point, the club have probably been too honest for their own good when they came out and basically said that they weren't prioritising cups. It was awful to hear, but actually, I think if you look at a lot of Premier, other Premier League clubs, they're the same, but they didn't come out and say it. Newcastle said it, and sometimes, because they speak so infrequently, and when they do, there seem to be these sort of PR statements everything gets picked over and the things that they do say almost seems that there's almost cal- a callous nature to them. And so, as I said, there's so many Castle fans who's never going to accept what Mike Ashley says and it will be on the point where that is retrievable. And so for me, I think it's it's in everyone's interest that at some stage, as long as a buyer can be found, he sells. For now, unfortunately, he's the one who's still here and he's the one who Rafa Benitez has to negotiate with. Most certainly. Um, overachiever then kind of the surprise package the overachiever um, it's, for me I mean I, I'm going to throw in Isaac Hayden there I think if anyone had said to you after that Cardiff game away when he got sent off that 
not only would Isaac Hayden be one of the first names on the team sheet, not only would he be be commanding a fee up to twenty million pounds, maybe even more, but that he also could be in the running for for an England call up because I think he played extremely well in the past few months. That he would definitely should have been on the fringes of that that squad, if not in it. I think people again would have, would have laughed you out of the studio. Yeah, I, I really worried that Isaac Hayden's Newcastle career was going to peter out at a whimper when the Cardiff situation happened. Clearly, at that, at that point, he was struggling psychologically to, to to handle everything that was going on. Understandably so, he he wanted hand in a transfer request. He'd wanted to leave, then came on a right back, which he's not really a right back. And then we barely saw him until Boxing Day, and then he's been never present ever since. And he's been excellent in that midfield I think that he suits that system so well because he's athletic he gets around the pitch he's got a bit of bite to him and he's a player Benitez really really likes Just he, he mentioned about how he watched videos of him during the summer of 2016 at, at Newcastle and he, when he was at Hull and he'd been at Arsenal he really liked what he saw he identified him he brought him in thought there even then that this is someone who could play for England because of, of what he brings and the way that Isaac Hayden has handled himself on and off the pitch, I think has been to a large degree remarkable. And I, I really, if he is to leave Newcastle, as it seems he wants to, made it more difficult for himself, ironically, by playing so well because now he's gonna he has more suitors, but he also costs a lot more money now. Um, so if Newcastle can find a decent price for him, sell him this summer, and I wish him all the very best in the future. I think I tweeted after the film game that if you're a, a coach teaching a young group of kids and you want a role model, then there's no one better to pin him to pin up on the wall than, than Isaac Hayden. I mean, he's been an absolute true professional. He said it himself, once you cross the line, anything else that's happening in the background goes out of the window. It's it's all about the football. Um and it, it was probably a very brave decision for him as well to actually come out and publicly disclose what was actually the issue because he said, I wanted to leave. There was a lot of kind of animosity about about that. And then he announced, well actually it's for quite a severe reason and I don't think any Newcastle fan then begrudged him because family is most important family is first um, but that would have been quite a, d- a difficult decision for him to, to say right, I think we, we do need to go public about why I want to leave yeah personally I'm sure he would have rather not if he hadn't had to but he even maintains now that he thinks he would have played even better if he hadn't had to travel hundreds of miles a week commuting down from the southwest up to Newcastle which is because basically his, his one-year-old daughter was born prematurely. She still requires regular, regu- uh, regular, sorry, medical help, and um, he's just he's he's a pleasure dude. He's a very honest person. He's brilliant to interview. One of the best footballers you can interview because he doesn't just give a cliched answer. He's very honest, thoughtful, um, intelligent, articulate, and on the final day of the season after the game, we spoke to him. He's always got time. I think there's only one or two times where throughout Isaac Hayden's entire Newcastle career he hasn't agreed to do an interview and usually that's when he's already done several a few weeks before and Newcastle have lost again or whatever and he thinks that someone else should take the responsibility but he came and uh, afterwards wished him luck for the future and he, he, he said thank you to every single journalist who was there shook the hand said it's been a pleasure and that's just the way that he is he was very emotional about the way that Newcastle fans had given him that send off A at St James's Park and then B at Craven Cottage singing there's only one Isaac Hayden and he really appreciates that and if it was purely football and reasons, he would not be leaving, and he's made that quite clear. But family comes first, as you say, and I think we all understand and accept that. It doesn't seem like much, but against, I can't remember the game was, it was against Southampton. 
and we were walking along the concourse and you, you know you nodded and he nodded back and that sounds like something so like insignificant but actually for a journalist it's important to have more than kind of just a, not yeah more than just a relationship with a footballer where you literally do just stop and chat you know it's it's good to see that he does interact when it's it's certainly not just with a microphone thrust in front of his face yeah he's just a, a nice bloke as well that's a, that's I made this point a couple of years ago when George Colton was on the podcast that Newcastle, what they have is, is they've got a, a, a dressing room full of very good characters and Isaac Hayden would be very, very much up there as probably the very best of them all. He's just a nice bloke. Well, certainly. But my... Are you, so you're not going to say Hayden? No, not Hayden. Hayden would be... Hayden would certainly deserve an honourable mention. Obviously not me. nice enough, Isaac. Hmm. Come on then, Christopher. So I'm going to go for someone who... Uh, again, if you asked me last summer if he'd made the impact he did, and even if it was only for a shortish period of time, Sean Longstaff, I just thought that I'd seen him play for the under-23s and I thought he looked a very tidy footballer, but for someone who was within hours of joining Portsmouth in League One on loan at the start of the season, Benitez had seen something he liked him in, in him, Newcastle had a couple of issues in midfield, so Benitez said, look, just hang around, maybe you'll go out on loan in January, you'll learn from, from these, and then for him to come in in the pressure situation he did, Newcastle were going through a difficult period again. They'd won the three games in a row in November, but then over Christmas they'd struggled. They'd got into the turn of the year. Key was away on the Asian Cup duty. Modi Army was injured. John Joe Shelby was injured. And suddenly Hayden and Longstaff are thrust into the team, two players who'd barely played any first-team football that season. Longstaff had excelled at Blackpool in League One the season before, but hadn't really... had never played in the Premier League before. And just... The, the composure that he showed and the, just the, the impressive performances against the likes of Man City, Burnley, all of those games, I thought it was excellent to see. And finally, finally, Newcastle have brought another player through. The last one really was Paul Dummett. And it, it sort of, he can act as an inspiration. Look, it's only the start of his Newcastle career. He has so much more to give. But hopefully he can ask, act as an inspiration to those under 23, those academy players who think, actually, look, there can be a bridge between the reserves and the first team. Do you think, um, given Longstaff's brilliant kind of emergence, that the because this is going to go on? What I think Guardiola has mentioned this at the City that the reserve structure doesn't do the young players any justice. And I think having watched the twenty threes before Longstaff came through, he was levels above. I mean, we're not just talking one or two; he was absolute streets ahead of any. Uh, kind of team he took on in that them open a few months and at times it was embarrassing and it, he, he looked a little uncomfortable because just the way he was playing you could see he needed more than that so obviously he either needed to go out on loan or he needed first team football um, Guardiola suggested you know doing what, what, what Spain does doing what, what the Liga do you know Barcelona B do you think there's a case for that? I think that it's difficult to introduce that into a, a culture whereby they, we've never really had that. There was talk we were going to do it a few years ago and it didn't really materialise. I think that the actually I was doubtful about the way the Checker Trade Trophy would work and although it's still not ideal, I think that the first team exposure that those players are getting is helping. I think more of a structure like that, possibly in one of the sort of those those cups is probably the best way forward. There is no you can't you, you basically unless someone plays in first team football you can't replicate that environment elsewhere every single player will tell you that Paul Dummett will tell you that when he went on loan suddenly he was playing with men he was playing proper football people laughed at him at the time 
and yet he was the one who eventually came through because he learned the tricks of the trade. He learned the way to play professional football. And yes, the standard's different in those lower leagues, but it's professional and it it, it, it is proper football. And so Newcastle need to improve their own loan system. They're, they're trying to do that. They're trying to bring a loan manager. Hopefully will be in place imminently. And then they can really find the loan because what long staff really benefit from the loan of Blackpool, but a lot of players they've had haven't had the experience. They've gone away and barely played or haven't really been in a system that works for them, played out of position. That's where Newcastle really need to look at if they want to be serious about bringing through players. But they also need to just, as Benitez wants, just up everything about the academy, just make it that little bit better because at the moment, I don't think, I think they're a bit behind some other teams in that regard. Also, so Longstaff gets the other achiever. I mean, we could also throw in Perez into that mix. We could throw in Fabian Scher because I'm not really sure anyone predicted that they'd have such a good season. Um, it's just, it was just a fantastic end to what was a disappointing start. Um, on to the underachiever of the year. Um, I think we all know who this is going to be. There's only one man and it is... I'm, I'm just going to take the words out of your mouth. It's going to be Kendi, isn't yeah, it? Because much. the way he ended last season, he was very much the Miguel Almiron of of last season, or the, sorry, the season before now, um, when he came in on loan against Chelsea, really boosted Newcastle, was a, if not probably the key man to why they finished 10th. Flip that around this time, around this season, his disappointing campaign was probably the reason Newcastle went out and got Almiron. Yeah, to a, to, a, to a large degree. I mean, before I say anything about Kenny, I want to caveat it with that he has had some personal issues this year, so they, they have affected him. And so I wanted to make that clear, and so that will undoubtedly have, have, have impacted upon him. But I, it also, just in general, what I've found frustrating is that he's not even been near the team in 2019, which tells you everything you know about performances. And I mean, last summer, I would very much if Newcastle had gone and paid £30 million for Kennedy, I probably would have said, look, it's maybe a little bit inflated, but I can see exactly why they've done it. He's made such a difference this team. He's crucial. Newcastle themselves feel vindicated. They didn't, and instead they signed him on loan again. I'd say that's a little bit after the fact, but look, he's had an absolutely terrible season. They, it basically started badly and, and just didn't get any better. The, the, obviously, the moment at Cardiff, first half where I don't think he completed a pass, should have been sent off, then... The penalty, which was just pitiful. Was that penalty in the moment, do you think? Yeah, because th- that didn't just impact upon Kennedy, although clearly knocked his confidence, that impacted upon Newcastle. That was the game that was winnable in that first period. Newcastle could have won the second game of the season, suddenly being on three points, they have a little bit of momentum, then they don't have as much pressure on them. But when they didn't win that and you saw the fixtures that were to come, suddenly it became very, very difficult. And that's why the start was so difficult. So because of his because his decision to take that penalty although I still think one of his teammates should have just said to him no you're not taking the penalty his decision to take that negatively impacted upon Newcastle's season and just in general I mean one goal one assist the goal was a very good one at Man United the assist was a very good one was for Rondon I think it was against Bournemouth but just so little of that we saw and really just someone who looked disinterested by the end and that was what was frustrating as I say he had personal issues yes but it just didn't seem like he was. This, he had the same motivation that he had when he came in, eighteen months ago. He was focused. He was determined to prove a point, and simply that th- those motivation levels just weren't there this year. A few other names to mention: uh, John Joe Shelby, Modi Army, are probably the two that stands out. Who've 
I mean, more Diarmi had a brilliant end of the season uh, two seasons ago now, as did John Joe Shabby. It, it was probably those three actually that changed the course of Newcastle's season, really. Um, and then Muto as well. That's slightly harsh, but we'll start with John Joe Shelby in a sentence or so. Very frustrating campaign from future. Still in doubt. If Benitez stays, then he may go. If Benitez goes, then it'll be interesting to see if another manager thinks that they can get the best out of him. Because that's been the frustration with John Joe Shelby. We all know, we saw it in the final game, how influential he can be. I just don't think he's done enough. Injuries have affected him this year, but I also think that uh, maybe attitude behind the scenes went against cost him against him as well. And more Diarmi, who was so crucial last season. He's always had a bit of stick, always been someone who divides the fan base. Um, but I think if you ask most, at least most journalists anyway that watch them week in, week out, giving more Diarmi a two-year contract wouldn't have been the worst thing this summer. No, and I think that the I mean the contract situation, Benitez kept on trying to play it down, but there's no doubt that it affected his ability to play. I think we've probably seen a bit would have seen a bit more of him, certainly from the start of games, if the contract clause hadn't been there. He wanted a two year deal. He was very good during the first half of the season, one of the most important players in terms of just really uh, in midfield, he just makes a nuisance of himself, he breaks up play. But we didn't really see that much of him later on in the season, certainly from the start of matches. And by, I think, the last five or six games, he'd almost clocked off to a certain degree himself because he wasn't going to get the two-year contract he wanted. It very much looks like he's going to leave. And a frustrating way for, I think, because I think for two and a half years, he did very well for Newcastle. Yes, he is. He does divide opinion. He isn't the tidiest, prettiest of footballers by any stretch of the imagination. But I think he does a crucial job and if he does go to Leeds United or wherever he may go, I think that they'll be getting a player who can really, in that midfield, do a very good job, particularly Championship, even lower half Premier League. You could see him doing a job for Chef United. I mean, we don't know what their budget's going to be, and he will command quite a wage packet, but if you want experience and someone who can really marshal that midfield, obviously fitness permitting and form permitting, but he wouldn't be a bad player to really have enforcing you know, to be the midfield enforcer. Yeah, that's my biggest concern, I think, for Newcastle this summer. If they do lose Diarmi, as it looks like they're going to run down this doubts over, it's that experience that Newcastle are going to lose, and that's what they need to replace. That's what Benitez is trying to make the point of, and you can't really uh, quantify how important that is. Newcastle have a fairly young team elsewhere in the squad. I think most of the squad is quite young. Dubravka has, yes, 30, but by goalkeeping stand, he hasn't really got that much experience, certainly in the Premier League, Newcastle need to bring in a couple more seasoned pros because they're going to lose certainly one if not both of those it's interesting you mentioned that because I looked at the signings that Benitez made at Liverpool obviously he was there for a long time and I can't remember the number off the top of my head but I think he made something like 48 signings in that time and the players that were over uh, 26 I think it was only about 11 12 of them and I think the biggest fee they paid was probably Robbie Keane again this is just off the top of my head I have it written down somewhere I'm going to do an article on it but it just shows that he doesn't want to build a team full of old players. He just wants to have the permission to bring in who he sees fit. And if he if he's allowed to, the chances are, and we've seen it elsewhere where he's managed well, that he's not going to pay a massive fee for these older players. He just wants to bring someone in on a free, maybe give them a bit of a higher wage for a year, two years. Um, a bit like Sammy Hippie and the whole Kevin Keegan debacle. I mean... That experience, even if they don't play, can be crucial, especially to the youngsters like Sean Longstaff or 
you know, whoever else is is coming through. Yeah, it's to help bring on those players. It's in the the moments in games where maybe it's not going for Newcastle. You need those cool heads. You need those players who've been there before. And it's something that I don't think the Newcastle hierarchy themselves have ever quite got their head round. They say that they realise that they they got the balance wrong when Newcastle went down in 2016. But I still think that there is that bit of disagreement there. And even if Benitez does sign a new deal, I still think there's going to be question marks over how many of those signings he can make. Newcastle certainly need them if they are losing Diarmi, particularly if Rondon doesn't sign as well, because I think the ideal scenario, as I've said a few times before, is you have Rondon plus a younger striker, and that younger striker can learn off him. Otherwise, it's a lot of pressure on that young player coming in. doesn't have someone necessarily to learn from. Well, certainly, and then just a word on Mudo. Mudo, yeah, it's been a, a, a frustrating first season in England from transitional to a degree struggled with the language hasn't quite adapted as quickly as Benitez wanted him to either tactically um, and really once Almiron came in just didn't get looking so I think that for him it's a big summer and a big pre-season coming up I can see that he has something I'm just not quite sure what it is yet he seems to run around a lot has a lot of pace about him but he needs to actually make more of a material he difference. He smiles as well. He likes a good smile, does does He does, and cle- I mean, he clearly has something about him. He's just he needs to. There needs to be a bit more definition in exactly what he does. Has Because I mean, one of the main issues was his language. He, he couldn't speak English. Benitez was a little bit miffed at that, and he, he didn't. I don't think it was necessarily miffed. He knew he couldn't speak. I think I think that the thought. That he would because he learned German quite quickly. I think they thought he would learn English yeah. quicker, but he struggled because you could see the frustrations of those. You could see the players also having to really like just shout, get in a position. And there was one where Richie was shouting at him, and he just turns around and smiled at him, which I kind of think summed up and he has his frustrations because you know he can't really follow instructions. Well, there's several times where Benitez would give him specific instructions on the training pitch, and he would know that Muto was nodding as if to say yeah I understand and he knew that he didn't understand so do we think that's improved then as a, do I you... think I mean, his language is improving I still don't think it's fluent yet but it is improving so I think over the summer something he needs to do is to make sure that he, he keeps working on that and he has been working on it to be fair it's not from a lack of effort I just think he is struggling and look English is a very different language mm-hmm. to Japanese I wouldn't even know where to start if I was trying to but, Japanese I mean, so. that would be brilliant if he came back at pre-season you know he'd done it off his own back and suddenly yeah. he could speak uh, we're not going to say speak Geordie because that's a very hard challenge, but you know, speak a bit of English a bit better. Yeah, and he learned German very quickly, so I think Newcastle are a bit surprised that it took him as long for English. But again, a different language; it just depends on these things. So that that for me would be my biggest advice to Muto this summer: is to get the language barrier resolved to as much of a degree as you can, and then that everything else should come from that. So that's the under underachiever there, um, Kennedy. On to. Um, the key moments we've got a few more players but the key moment for you over the, the course of the entire season I'm going to throw in Miguel Almiron just that night against City the, pre, the, the pre-match build up when it was announced that yes this is happening he's on a plane he's, the deals the talk's been done the deal's been agreed I think it was first broken by a, a journalist over in South America then it was broken by an Atlanta journalist and then it filtered through and instantly from Arriving at the into the press room and everyone was thinking, oh, here we go again. It's going to be a dire couple of days and then we're going to have the, the fallout. Within the space of 20 minutes, everything suddenly changed and then the atmosphere and the whole stadium changed as well and it was it was electric. He hadn't even signed. You know, he could have failed his medical or he could have pulled out the deal, whatever, but 
that obviously the, the performance was brilliant, but that was largely down to this 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 whole changing atmosphere due to the, the announcement that Miguel Amiron was, was halfway across the Atlantic. Yeah, that was transformational really that, that day. Um, the fact Newcastle then used that momentum to go and win and the Newcastle fans were brilliant that night at St. James's. It was, really was a, an electric atmosphere. Um, and so that was that was crucial at the time because they needed that win. So I would certainly give an honourable mention that actually the moment, I, well, one moment I'm going to say, which is not going to be my actual moment, but I think was important as well, was the first time Miguel Almiron broke in behind the Huddersfield defence, the noise at St. James's in terms of that sense of anticipation, the sort of the rise in, in volume of the crowd. I think Newcastle fans hadn't had that for a long time, so I'm going to throw that into the mix as well. But for me, the moment of the season was actually Perez's winner against Everton because of the context of that game at half-time. Newcastle looked like they were going to be dragged back into a very difficult situation. Teams were winning elsewhere. I think Cardiff were winning. Southampton were winning. I'm not sure if Newcastle were going to drop into the bottom three or whether they were just going to be three points above the relegation zone, but we knew they had difficult games to come. They needed to get something out of the game at half-time. They were First half, they'd been awful. 2-0 down, deservedly so. Then Perez almost single-handedly dragged them back in that game. I thought he was fantastic that second half. Absolutely inspirational. And uh, he set up Rondon's uh, first goal, then equalised and then scored another one. I think it was the 84th minute or something, the winner. And that victory was huge and really gave Newcastle the cushion so that they could enjoy the last part of the season. If they hadn't won that game, certainly if they hadn't got a draw, at least from it, I think that it would have really been squeaky bum time, for want of a better term, in the last few games of the season. Brilliant. Um, But I mean, the second half of the season, there was quite a few moments. I think Southampton was a... Was 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 a decent one, um, and did, were you were you always confident it was going to happen? Uh, turn around in form and Newcastle would be comfortably safe. I have to be honest that by about the eighth or ninth game of the winless run, my com- up until that point I'd always thought, look, with Rafa Benitez in charge, I think Newcastle will be fine. But it was Southampton away. I think it was the nil nil draw at Southampton away, and it was just how poor Newcastle were going forward the, defensively they did very well I mean Dubravka made some very good saves but defensively he didn't really worry about them too much but I was just concerned did this team have the goals that was before Rondon was really in it before he was playing well and so at that stage I did waver and I did I did fear for them but once Rondon got on the team and once he was the focal point and obviously once Almiron came in but even by about November by mid-November when they were that three game win run I thought they're going to have enough here they should be fine um, we're going to get on to the unsung hero, but just before we do, we're going to launch a new kind of offshoot episode over the next couple of weeks, and it's going to be called uh, the NUFC Unpopular Opinions. That name may change, but basically, the writers here, uh, we're going to come in with a couple of unpopular Castanite opinions. I think I have unpopular opinions anyway, most of the time. <laughs> and discuss that, debate it, and um, basically, we want you guys to send in your unpopular opinions too, and any ones that we don't think of ourselves. We'll certainly try and mention one or two at the end of every episode. We're going to do five or six to take us through the summer because by then we've probably run out of unpopular opinions. Um, so you can send them over via the Twitter, the EIBW podcast, or uh, email me at andrew.musgrove at reachplc.com. Uh, so we look forward to hearing from you. On to the unsung hero. Um, I'm not sure who's banging on the wall. Maybe that's someone who wants to be a... And unsung hero in our office there sounded a bit vicious. Hope everyone is all right. Unsung hero. Um, I'm going to throw in Florian Lejeune because I think his return to action, albeit very brief in terms of the length of the season, 
was just such a needed boost for Newcastle. Um, I think it brought on uh, Fabian Shea. I think it brought on uh, Jamal Lascelles. And without him, I think Newcastle will, would have found themselves a lot closer to the relegation zone um, than, we, than, we, than we did. Yeah, I'd agree with Lejeune. I'm, I'm a big fan. I think that it was almost missed in January when <clears throat> Newcastle started playing well again. It was when Lejeune came back and that system that they're playing now relies on having Lejeune and Cher either side of uh, the cells for it to be really excelling, I think, is it? And the three of them just complement each other so well. And it was such a cruel blow when he got another injury. I mean, to to... You could see his teammates and speak to them after the game that they knew how much he'd been through and how difficult it was going to be for him to come back again. Very unlucky that he's done both knees now, but the, the chances of it does happen, it does increase, sorry, if you've done one of them. So he's just obviously not as good a player as, but it's, I think a lot you've seen a lot of written and said about Americ Laporte at uh, Man City. And I think Lejeune's a similar player to a degree in that he just... If you give him the ball, you know he's going to either play a lovely diagonal ball or he can advance forward from defence with it. Or He's just very composed and then usually does the basics right. I think the one issue he might have is he isn't the quickest and sometimes he gets exposed defensively away from home. But I think that Newcastle are very much a better team when he's in it. Do you think he'll be back um, in time? Pre-season, is pre-season pushing it? Pre-season will be pushing it, I think. I think that by the end of pre-season, he might be coming in in around but they won't rush him back. Newcastle could have played him by early to mid-December. He played for the under-23s, played 45 minutes, but Benitez, even though he knew he was back, he didn't want to rush him back. So I think that Newcastle will be extra careful with him and it's probably likely to be September, October before we see him again. I suppose one uh, positive is that it was the other knee. It's not like he has an issue. It's not like he is injury-prone and such as that. He gets injured a lot, and it's the little niggling injuries. Just he's just been unfortunate twice in Newcastle. He never had a long-term injury until he joined Newcastle, I believe. He has been unfortunate, but once you do one of your knees, the the chances increase that you can either do it again or might do the opposite knee, whether it's because you overcompensate or whatever. So, yes, it, I hope that this is the end of it. But you see someone like Callum Wilson's done it a few times as well. It is quite common that you have more than one of these. He hadn't really had injuries before he's come to Castle. He's been very, very unlucky in that regard. And I just hope that he does make a speedy recovery and that he, he gets a bit more luck in that regard next season. And a word for Paul Dummett as well. Another one who returned from injury, slotted into that three centre-back role. Um, and again, you know, he just does the job well. Um, obviously, he had a lot of criticism early on in his career, um, Pardew and all that. But he's come back. And again, I feel like he has been a properly unsung hero because... While Cher and Lascelles gets the plaudits, Paul Dummett has had to come back into a team which was doing very well, replace a man in Lejeune who is arguably a very talented centre-back, more talented at centre-back than Paul Dummett. And Paul Dummett just, just took it on and, and, and did the job to a very, very satisfactory standard. Yeah, I really like Paul Dummett. He's not the flashiest. He knows what his limitations are. But I think that he has actually improved on the ball in recent weeks as well. He has taken a bit more of that on and always dependable Benitez likes him a lot very good character in the changing room again someone who's come through the academy so has that connection and um, the amount of last ditch tackles I mean the, the, the Bournemouth clearance off the line was fantastic left, fantastic yeah. picture oh well. absolutely brilliant picture yeah and so yeah those moments will be remembered and rightly so because uh, I think that he's again been very again he had, a, he had a very unlucky injury as well so he's hamstrings 
keep affecting him, but hopefully going forward, his fitness issues are behind him as well. Anybody else you want to throw into the mix? I think they're probably the main two. Um, maybe the Newcastle backroom staff, because they don't really get talked about. It's all about Benitez, and Benitez is the main man, but he does uh, delegate a lot to his backroom. So I thought that... Um, I don't really want to do this, but I'm going to praise Mark Douglas for a piece he did the other week with uh, Jamie Harley, who's the head of sports science. A, for what Jamie Harley does, but also B, you saw within that how influential Paco Benitez's assistant is, that he is the one who does a lot of the training sessions, decides what's going to be done load-wise and whatnot. And Newcastle have a very good backroom team there who really give Benitez exactly what he wants, deliver what he wants, the intricate details, the information he wants to get across. And so I think that, uh, yeah, I'll just give a mention to them in general, in general, the backroom staff. Fantastic. And um, also we'll mention the, the great work the Newcastle United Foundation do, mm-hmm. the, the the volunteers of the food bank as well who've stood out there. Yeah. Um, in every sort of weather, weather. the fans donated 4.4 tonnes um, of food. Um, I think it was over £35,000 worth um, of, of donations uh, and the food mixed together, the toiletries and all that as well, I think took it over to 40. So that was just on match day as well. It doesn't include um, the various talkings that ourselves and the likes of True Faith have done as well to raise money, which is always brilliant to see. Um, and just a word, if you are passing the Granger Market or you're passing the, the food bank up in the West End, you know, please, if you can afford to, drop in a few cans of food because right now the summer holiday is their most pressing time uh, or the summer holidays to come when the, the schools do break off um, and there's no match to help them out. So if you when you're doing your shopping, can't put an extra few cans in a, a soup or what have you in your trolley, then please do and drop it off at the Granger Market. Um Right, well then, on to the signing of the season. Signing of the season, I suppose I'll have to go for Rondon because I gave him a player of the season. So because of the transformational uh, effect he's had on the team because of how integral he's made himself, I don't really think there's that much more Gnado than that. I've, I've said it before. I think that you, honourable mentions, the likes of Fabian Cher, I'm sure a lot of people will probably pick for that, given that he was only three and a bit million the castle. Uh, exercises clause but I just think that for someone Almiron as well he could he could throw in there but just for someone who their importance to the team the way that I think you could take share out of the team and although maybe Newcastle may not operate as well they could still get by if you were to take Rondon out of the team during the second half of that season Newcastle are a very very different side and I think that's why I'm going to go for Rondon uh, briefly then uh, the game of the season was it the City game Everton game uh, game of the season bizarrely I do remember what I picked for this one I picked a defeat and I'm going to go for the Liverpool game for a few reasons first of all just because in terms of actually as a pure, ske- pure just pure spectacle I thought it was a fantastic game I thought both teams were brilliant um, the noise and the atmosphere I, was, I wasn't I was sure about at 7.45 kick off on a Saturday and I'm still not sure about them but on this occasion it was excellent and Newcastle really really gave Liverpool a fright and the pre-match display from War Flags showed Newcastle United at its very, very best. I was just going to add, we probably should add them in as yeah. a bit of unsung heroes because oh, the lads have really put in a lot of effort and that display just topped it off. Oh, it did. And, and again, Newcastle fans are the ones who contributed that. More than 2,000 people donated. Um, and it, I was nervous before the flag was unveiled, thinking, is this going to be with a damn squib? Is it going to be as good as we thought? But it was absolutely brilliant. Now, your name is on there. 
but you tell me you don't you can't be sure if it, if, it, if you are the Chris Woff I can't remember if I donated or not no I may have done but there are other, I know there are other Chris Woffs that's, that's, that's how Flash so. Chris is he's just chucking his money about <laughs> like he's you know running out tomorrow yeah well if only I was paid that well as to be able to do that but I, I, as I say I don't remember but if Mark Douglas did pick out that I was on there if that's me there's a Pappist he say as well and mm. there's quite a, quite a few interesting names on oh, there and it, it, and it so just everything about that match and I thought that that was that was showing also that this Newcastle team as much as they struggle at points this season the foundations are there to build something that, that, that really they're not a million miles away from being able to compete regularly in the top half they need money spent they need quality in certain areas but they're not a million miles away they seem to have one of those games at least once a season I remember being my United last season or the season before however yeah. you want to say it I think we can still get away with saying last season for that, that game but yeah the My United game Richie scored uh, that was that was just fantastic and then of course the Chelsea game at the end of the season as well and then before that you had that Spurs game uh, when Newcastle were already relegated so it's not an uncommon occurrence that Newcastle do have an end of season rally really No but I think that what was different about this game to those ones was that this was a Liverpool team who had been in such fantastic form and Newcastle really gave them a fright when they faced Chelsea at the end of last season. Chelsea had basically signed off for the season other than the FA Cup final. When they beat Man United, that was a brilliant performance. That was similar to Man City. I think, well, Man City would be the other one I compare it to. Man City, the only team who defeated Man City, the only Premier League team in 2019 is Newcastle United. And for Newcastle to raise their performance level so high even though that they were safe to have gone and done that was just so impressive and as I say it showed Newcastle United its very best and hopefully going forward we can get a lot more of those nights rather than them being so special because they're rare hopefully they're I hope we don't take them for granted but I hope that they become a more regular occurrence so everyone listen just taking this moment this is Chris Woff celebrating a 7.45 kickoff on a Saturday however I guarantee if it's a 7.45 kickoff down at Brighton it'll be slightly different next season so just, just yeah, I mean, remember this moment I was, a bit, I was a bit worried about deadline but I managed to get my stuff across mm. so. um, right well just to wrap up there and we've already had key moment but what about a moments like a moment that, that just sticks out for you so for me and I'm sure many Newcastle fans it would be Jordan Pickford in that third goal that went in when Prez got the winner, especially after all he'd done in the first half, saved the penalty, should have been sent off. I think a lot of fans really enjoyed that. Um, is there anything that you particularly sticks out? You know, maybe that you've seen at a press conference or you know the fans maybe necessarily haven't haven't seen. Is there anything that you want to share? Um, before I get on with things some fans might not have seen, one I would pick out was the Balmira moment I mentioned earlier. Just being inside St James's when he broke through against Huddersfield for the first time, and just it was—it's hard to describe what it what it was like. Uh, every Newcastle fan there, I'm sure, will know what I mean. But I was sitting in the, the in the uh, in the Gallagher for that, and it was it, you, it was you, the you sense of anticipation. Like, yeah, yeah. that you Newcastle haven't had that in an attacking player for a long while. They've had some very good players over the last few years not quite at the stand they used to have before but just that sense of wow we haven't seen this in a long while and that that really did stick out for me because suddenly I thought wow this this guy there was so much pressure on him he's already bizarrely when he ran through and I'm probably going to get pelters for this bizarrely it reminded me of the moment Albert Luque ran through 
and in his first game at St James's Park unfortunately he got injured and it all went downhill from there but there was that kind of sense of an excitement and I know we've had players since then who've done the same thing but it just did remind me because I remember him going down uh, and people were just excited and it's great to have a player now that you know do get the fans really off their seat and I think obviously Kennedy brought that the season before shame it hasn't gone on as we've discussed but yeah that moment I mean sitting in the Gallagher for that game rare day off and it was my girlfriend's first game as well and you know it's always like this well not always but you know I mean if he had had scored as well I mean it would have been a perfect goal as well yeah it was a and I I know a lot of people said he he should have scored and he, he probably should have done but he's done that finish a lot of times that chip over when he was back in Atlanta United so it's unfortunate because it would have been the, the perfect way for his debut to end in terms of a moment that fans probably didn't see I think I would go to a Benitez press conference and probably the one pre-Liverpool and just the you, you saw everything about the competitor within Benitez the fact that the ego that is there understandably so when he was asked on several occasions about Liverpool, that was the week of the, they'd just come back in the Champions League, had the dramatic. Sorry, they were four 0 down in the Champions, but the week after there was the dramatic uh, comeback, and he was asked which one was better, and he just saw him then defend his own record and quite spiky about him. Was almost almost seemed offended that people would suggest otherwise, and I think that 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 for me showed the difference between Benitez and some previous managers not in the sense that look managers have to have an ego to a certain degree and Alan Pardew certainly had a very big ego even though I didn't I'm just saying that as an outsider because I wasn't actually here dealing with them on a day to day basis but that Benitez wants his own place in history and he and he believes that he deserves a place in history and he wants to create that at Newcastle United and you just got that in those moments where you thought yeah this this guy is ambitious he still wants to win and he still wants to do that at Newcastle and it was it was sort of confirmation of what I already knew but just it was just fascinating to see because he was quite spiky about it and quite adamant that his achievement still um, was more impressive than, than I, 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 I agree to him to extent look what Liverpool did was fantastic but I do think it's different to come back in an individual game than when you've got two legs when you're 3-0 when you're 3-0 down against a very very good AC Milan team, arguably the best team in the world at the time, and to with the players that he had to have to have overturned that. I don't think I would necessarily have defended my own record as vigorously as he did, but that tells you everything about Rafa Benitez and that he just strives for perfection and, and wants more. There we have it. Um, well, Chris, in a sentence, give me your season rating overall for Newcastle United's performance. We'll do out of ten, and why that number? seven and the reason why I'm going seven is because if it was for the first ten games of the season I'd have to go very very low and then I'd go nine for the second half of the season so probably evens out really as as about a seven across the course of it if I was to sum up the season in a sentence it would be very nervous times to begin with but Rafa Benitez showed his excellence in the second half of the campaign Shakespeare would be proud of that sentence, Chris. Well, I'll try. Um, well, there you have it. We're going to be bringing you a few uh, more season reviews over the next couple of weeks. We'll have one with Lee Ryder and one with Mark Douglas looking at the, the matches that turn the season around and, and, and specials as well. We're going to have a lot of specials over the next um, few months. So please remember to like and subscribe on whatever podcast platform you're listening through. And for now, that has been the Everything is Black and White podcast. <laughs>